0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and this is Volume 118. And what an episode we got. Only one episode away from our season finale, and we have got four Tony nominees here to talk quick before the awards this Sunday. Orfe comes to talk about her supporting actress turn in Legally Blonde. Kevin Adams designed lighting for Spring Awakening. We've got Anna Luizos, who is nominated for her set design for High Fidelity, but also did Curtains and In the Heights. And we talked to David Pitu for his supporting actor turn in Love Music, the Kurt Vile musical, uh, where he plays Bertolt Brecht. We also got Tony-nominated songs from uh, Curtains, Grey Gardens and a special advance from Legally Blonde. But that's enough of me talking. You've uh, seen Orfe everywhere in the media, but I think you're going to still find something new right here. <laughs> Close. well they're gonna have to look for ways for this short name to Philip Marquis because Orfe has been lighting up stages in legally blonde gaining a lot of press and now a Tony nomination <gasps> yes for her role as Paulette in legally blonde Orfe is here between shows I actually just saw saw the show
1: myself just a few minutes ago and you beat me here <laughs> somehow someway, you got here before I did so how are you doing I'm doing great I'm happy to be here and uh, looking forward to chatting.
0: Are you, uh, do you get nervous at all thinking about the Grammys coming up? Or?
1: Not the Grammys. <laughs> I mean, sorry, but you, but you know what? I, I wish the Grammys were coming up, too. I have been to the Grammys many, many times, and I am a Grammy nominator, yes. so that's not a completely off-the-wall question Yes, it's for in me. your bio.
0: That's it, probably why I that's said
1: what that. you, That's what you're remembering it from. But uh, I'm, I'm nervous in a good way. I'm nervous, you know, I hope my dress is great, I hope my shoes are fabulous, you know, I just think...
0: Do you have a designer? I,
1: I do have a, a designer. I have uh, this wonderful, wonderful up-and-coming guy named Angelo Lembru, and he built me a dress on my body. Seriously. So I'm going for my third fitting this coming week, and hopefully it'll, it'll be a big hit. <laughs> so, you know, it's all about the dress on the red carpet, so let's, let's hope it's fabulous.
0: Well, before we get going, we actually have a very sneak, advanced copy of your song from the show. Really? Ireland.
1: You got one before I did.
0: So there <laughs> you go. <laughs> so you want to, should we take a little, let our listeners take a listen to that? Sure.
1: L, do you know
2: the number one reason behind all bad hair decisions? Love. You lost without your love. Your heart is on the floor i can help you i've been there before when i need to relax i just put on some tracks from this cd i bought for the store isn't that relaxing it's called celtic moats when i'm lonely or feeling dejected I play this and it never fails I pretend like I'm in Ireland With Enya and the whales When my telephone gets disconnected Or I spend every night alone I pretend like I'm in Ireland Where the Irish bagpipes drone. Smell the grass as a rainstorm is ending People smile while I stroll past their farms With a red-headed sailor named Brendan And we dance without moving our arms In a bar once I met this guy bought me like 14 beers and he told me that he was from Ireland so I lived with him 10 years if I squinted he'd he like my sailor through my boozy delusional fog but he dumped me for some slut named Kayla took my trailer and took my dog Allowed To shoot him in the knees Hey, you look like that poster for Ireland Long blonde hair and that sweet sunny face Oh no wait, that's the poster for Sweden Oh screw it, I'll never see either place But a girl sweet as you has a future You have hope as each new day dawns, girls like you always get to see higher Give my love to the leprechauns.
0: To me, one of the most undeniable things about this song that Watching you today, how does that big voice come out of that little body?
1: (laughs) No, I don't know. know. It's always been well. It was a little stranger when I was six. People are starting to be able to digest it a little bit more easily now. It was a little more strange when I was a young girl, and it was that big voice coming out of this midget. But you know, so.
0: I mean, a lot of my listeners, I think. No, I make no secret of. I love it when it is when singers on Broadway don't have the traditional Broadway sound. Yes. And as you started singing that song, I was like, oh, here's a great, unique voice Oh, on stage. thank you.
1: It gets me in some trouble now and again, because people are very, their ear is trained for a very specific type of voice when they go to a Broadway musical. And so, you know, I'm I'm not likely to be cast in the the shows like you know Les Mis and things like that. But they, they should. Well, they should I know, I know it. it is interesting, but you know, you have to you have to really be very creative to think outside the box that that is created in every genre in entertainment. And uh, you know, I, I'm I'm lucky I've had as many jobs as I have because it is you know I I've been in a lot of pop musicals. Because that is the one avenue for singers like myself, or singers who come from the record business like myself. And uh, it isn't that standard, you know, legit Broadway voice. I have it. I'm not called upon to use it very often. So, you know, so I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I'm glad people are liking it. And
0: so, as you said, pop musicals, you did Saturday Night Fever for a year yes. and a half?
1: Uh, yeah, 18 months, that would no, be, yeah, yeah, yeah That's close. that's right, yeah. And you didn't miss a performance. I did not miss a performance. I actually have never missed a performance until about two weeks ago, which was apparently Le Scandal of all time. And um, really what happened, because I I got, I want to say almost hundreds of emails about, oh my god, are you okay?" And and really all that happened is uh, they changed the carpet in my room. And uh, a piece of it somehow wound up in my throat in the middle of the first show. And I couldn't get it up out of my throat. And uh, so I went. Uh, Dr. Kessler, who's a genius, he f- drove in from Connecticut to see me between shows. But just on the off shoot, that, the off chance that he wouldn't have been able to heal me between shows... Uh, the stage manager and I decided it would probably be more fair to everybody to give them three hours notice rather than 20 minutes, you know, so it was the first time I've ever missed a show in my entire entire Broadway career. And it was very, very difficult for me. But um, and I could have done the second show, but just again, not to have everybody scrambling around. I, I felt it would be best to just say, you know, okay, I'll 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 bow out of the show tonight.
0: Was the understudy actually prepared? Because I can imagine no, the understudy uh, going,
1: no, because I oh, won't get on stage. It's no, <laughs> no, they no, actually they weren't prepared, and that's why it was it was you know our stage manager was like, look, let, let's really give everybody a long time <laughs> to get to this because I've never ever called out and and uh, you know I've taken a couple of vacations, not even a couple. I took a vacation, and. Um, I have had uh, pre-scheduled outs, uh, maybe two in in all. I had one during Trailer Park. Otherwise, I don't. Uh, I'm the kid who wouldn't go to sleep when I was, you know, with the adults because I just knew I'd be missing something. So I just have that chip, you know. I'm just <laughs> like, I'm not. What's going? On? I'm not missing anything. See, I never miss school. It's just, it's just the way I am.
0: You had a pop career going on. I did a, a while ago. Before then, yes. What What was your kind of? What would you say is the biggest difference? in how you find yourself treated as an artist between the pop world and the theater world.
1: Oh, see, that's that's not a really fair question. I'll tell you why. Because we were... Not to say we're not treated well on Broadway, because we are treated very, very well on Broadway, but when you're a recording artist and you're having a, a, a modicum of success, it's really, really royal treatment all the way. <laughs> so I'm very <laughs> spoiled, you know, First class and stretch limos and, you know, fancy restaurants and big shot executives and, you know, just four star hotels all the way. So, you know, uh, I applaud you
0: for walking over here through the rain. Yeah, (laughs) no, it was,
1: you know, but, you know, we never kind of you just look, you didn't know there was another way of life. You know, when you're young, I was very, very young when I was in the entertainment, when I started in the music business, everybody I was coming up with was treated the same way. It's part of the package. You know what I'm saying? It's part of the whole way it's presented.
0: I understand you got a little ripped off, but if they treat you that way, you sometimes don't notice where everything you is going.
1: Absolutely, because it's like, oh, look over here, look over here. It is, it is. And, you know, you, we did get taken advantage of grossly and horribly. But um, while I was blissfully ignorant, it was a really great time, <laughs> you know. It's only in hindsight that I could sit here and, you know fill a behind-the-music segment for hours and just, you know, make everybody weep. But who wants to hear that? You know, it's, that's not fun for anybody.
0: But, so performing on stage for theater versus uh, for pop, what are the differences? What do you like about each? What do you dislike about each?
1: I, there's nothing I dislike about performing live, so that that's an easy answer. But uh, <laughs> as far as audience capacity, there were nights when we were on certain tours, there was, like, a big... MTV tour we were on and we'd sometimes wind up in front of 30,000 people. So when people always say, well, how come you don't have any stage fright? How come you're not nervous when you play? the?" Pa-? Listen, I've played two of the biggest houses on Broadway. I have played the Minsk Off and now at the Palace. And people are like, why aren't you nervous? I'm like, because this is one section of what I'm used yeah. to looking out at, you know. And I, I really love the immediacy of live audiences, because you can gauge, you can gain your energy from them. I'd say uh, rock concert audiences are certainly more raucous, unless you're in Japan. They're very polite. It's kind of the same. It's very similar. You know, audiences are audiences, you know, and you just hope, really, when you get out there that you do right by them. It's always kind of trying to make everybody happy, you know.
0: Now, backing up a little bit to your Tony-nominated turn here, and hopefully... Tony Wynn pressure, pressure, pressure the song Ireland that we just played seems to me to be very much crafted to take advantage of the unique strengths of your voice. Was that the case? Did he
1: write this for you? No, they did not actually they did they they didn't write the song for me at all. I was not really in line to be in this show, honestly, so I would love to say that they wrote it for <laughs> me. I think that. Uh, along the way, uh, Larry and Nell were very generous with allowing me to do my thing with the song. I will say that they allowed the crafting and the structuring of the vocal performance to go along with what i 'm you know what what my skill set is but no they didn 't they didn 't write that song for me once we got in there and I was cast. Bend and Snap was more tailored for my skill set, but that existed as well. So, you know, I came on board very, very late. When, when did you come in on the show? I, I think I, Michael Rupert and I were probably two of the last cast members to join the show, and neither one of us had done any of the previous workshops or, or anything. We literally were hired in the 11th and a half hour. No, as much as I would like to say they wrote that song for me, they did not. But again, they, they were very, very trusting with, with me singing it. They let me, they let me have my way with it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought you gave a definite unique spin on the character, you know. Thank you. So what was the process of you getting into the show? Who did you have to jump hoops? What were the hurdles?
1: I, I, oh man, there were a lot of hurdles. (laughs) There were a lot of hurdles because clearly I can't change my physical stature, um, And I couldn't gain 40 pounds in, you know, three months. It was a very long and arduous audition process. It was repeatedly, you know, bringing me back, bringing me back. And kind of, I think that, I I think they just felt that I was the person who could be the perfect marriage between the comedy and the singing voice. So I think that after a while, after a long while, I think they got over what their preconceptions about the physicality of Paulette was. And they just said, okay, let's let's run with this and see what happens.
0: I think they made the right call.
1: I hope so. It, <laughs> I think it, I hope they think like they it. made the right call now, <laughs> you know, with my Grammy nomination. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're never
0: gonna let me forget that. Are no, you?
1: I'm trying to put it out there. I'm trying to make <laughs> yep. it happen. I'm trying to conjure it. Now
0: um are, I I understand that you might be interested in trying to put together uh, another solo album and
1: going back to that or Oh yeah, I do. It's it's my It's my dream. It's my goal. It's everything that I gear my life towards. But doing eight shows a week, honestly, if you're going to do it justice and if you're going to show up like I do every day, it's not that easy to go into the studio till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, that's that's when you make records. You know, that's when the producers and the mixers and everybody work uh, and the writers. So it's not easy to do it while you're in a show. So I'm hoping at some point... I can pick back up where I left off, you know, 106 years ago, you know. It's always my dream. But, you know, I get to do cast recordings. You know, I did Trailer Park and we did Legally Blonde, so I kind of get to do do a little bit of that and get into the studio and, you know, exercise that muscle too, so...
0: One last thing. It's been talked about a lot, so we don't have to go into, into a lot of depth. But just okay. for our listeners who don't know, how much fun is it getting to work with your husband on stage every night? It,
1: it, it is, honestly, and it's not a cliche and it's not a line. It's Andy's such an unbelievably charming and wonderful human being, and I'm very, very lucky he was brave enough to marry me. So he's got such a sparkle and a twinkle in his eye, and it really—it's an effortless, effortless thing. It's the most effortless part of my job to get to— See, (laughs) you see, I can't even like stop giggling when I talk about it. But it's really we've done five shows together. So we have a really instant, effortless chemistry between us. And it's it's the best part. It's the best part to know that my husband gets to not be my husband eight (laughs) times a week. And I get to like fall in love with him all over again every night.
0: All right. Well, it's always wonderful to talk with somebody who's Tony-nominated, Grammy-nominated, Emmy-nominated, and (laughs) Oscar-nominated.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Thanks.
0: close. I'm sitting here with Kevin Adams just shortly before the Tony Awards and I have to say I don't want to wish any bad mojo on him but I'm very excited (laughs) because I think he's a lot to get it I will just be dumbfounded if he doesn't take the award but in addition to doing the lighting design for Spring Awakening he has also done such shows as Passing Strange, Hedwig and the Angry Inch and a lot more and he's here to talk about his unique style and everything (laughs) he does. How are you doing? Hi Michael, I'm well thank you. (laughs) So how, 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 to get it out of the way, the inevitable, uh, you know, how are you feeling about, you know, the Tony Awards coming up I'm feeling up great,
3: and I can't wait for it to be over. <laughs> I can't wait to be on the other side of it all. Uh, it's neat, but it's we opened five months ago, five and a half months ago, and it's just going on and on, and I'm ready to move on to a new place in my life. <laughs> now, one of your
0: big things in, in your lighting design is it's not just invisible to the you know it's not just up in the rafters it's on the set it's on the stage and how did you come
3: about that kind of theory because I understand it's not just Spring Awakening you do this in other words. No it's been a very long path for me to use this stuff. Uh, I actually trained to be a set designer and I never had any interest in lighting and I wasn't a trained lighting designer or I just never really had any interest in it and uh, I graduated, I got a master's in in theater design from California Institute of the Arts in the mid 80's and I moved into Los Angeles because I thought I wanted to be a production designer in film and music videos is what I was really into at the time. and I was designing live performance. I always really liked live performance and really wanted to work in live performance, but there weren't that many options in Los Angeles at the time. But uh, I started going to galleries and museums with all of my uh, artist friends from Cal Arts, and I started seeing um, Los Angeles has a huge amount of light and space work in their museums, in their permanent collections, and also they, they bring in work to show it. And I started seeing Work by all these artists who use illuminative objects to frame space and to make sculptural things and to light space. And I just, I had never really, it just made me see and appreciate light and things that light in a whole new way, or made me just see those for the first time. And so I started lighting my sets with those things that I was seeing in galleries. And, um, My little set design career was just like chugging along so slowly in Los Angeles at the time, and immediately all these really interesting artists picked up on the lighting I was doing, and uh, like these, there were a lot of performance artists in Los Angeles all over the country in the late '80s and early '90s. But several like like John Fleck and Rachel Rosenthal and these really interesting performance artists called me up and said, like, I want you to light my work. Your your lighting is really cool, and I was lighting Sandra Bernhard concerts and the Actors Gang and. The lighting thing just took off and I really just taught myself like the nuts and bolts of it. And I got a TCG fellowship to sort of help me learn more, more about just the sort of regular stuff. But, but a lot of it was based on using all these things I was finding in hardware stores that I had seen these artists use like fluorescent tubes and light bulbs, light bulbs, light bulbs and all this stuff. So I've been working with those things since about 88 or 89 is when I started lighting my little sets.
0: And then how did you start moving from doing these, like, kind of lighting installations in
3: Los Angeles to designing theater in New York? Well, I had lived, I was living in Los Angeles. I lived in Hollywood for a long time, Um, (laughs) working. I was an artist, and I did all kinds of things. But uh, I was working in life in theater, and um, I started working regionally at La Jolla Playhouse. I did a show with Michael Mayer at La Jolla Playhouse. Michael Greif brought me there. I had done a few shows at Trinity Rep. I'd actually done a few shows at the Public. A few, I'd uh, done a show at CSC, and I had this TCG fellowship. I was spending more and more time in New York, which was never really a place I thought I would live, or could live, or wanted to live. And then I go back to Los Angeles, which was such a horrifying place in the in the early mid nineties. Um, and it just, every time I went back to L.A., it was like, what am I doing here? Then I'd go to New York, and I'd be like, this just feels right. Oh, my God, we were going to go through one more O.J. trial, and uh, I'd been to the riots in L.A., and the other O.J. trials, and the Ronnie King, and the earthquakes, and half my friends died, and half moved here, and it just seemed like the right thing to do. <laughs> so I moved here in 96, and I really just devoted myself to lighting. And I wasn't young. I mean, I was in my... God, I was in my mid-30s, I think. Looking back on it now, it was a very frightening thing to do. I just, like, showed up. I got an agent, joined the union, and just showed up and hit the ground running. And the city was so responsive to me and so nurturing and so kind. All the things that um, were kind of lacking in the... Los Angeles theater scene at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I I mentioned, you've done, you know, Besides
0: Spring Awakening, Passing Strange, Hedwig at the Angry Inch, which are kind of both kind of more rock or, you know, contemporary musicals. Do you seek out these shows, or do they seek you out? I
3: think it's both. I've always enjoyed um, rock theater or concert theater, and I just like rock and roll. But I remember um, in the late 60s, my parents were in the... Tape of the Month Club with 8-track tapes and we got the uh, original recording of Hair and we used to play at my mother's T-Bird and I just just thought this thing is so cool, this thing Hair and I just learned every, I didn't know what the words meant (laughs) but I learned every word of every one of those songs and just sang them over and over and then I saw Jesus Christ Superstar the movie like two nights in a row in the early 70s and I wore that album out and I just have always responded to um, rock theater and I, I love working in it but that, it's kind of both. Like uh, All roads kind of led to me with Passing Strange, and especially with Hedwig. Like There were like, five different leads where it just sort of led to me. But then you've also done some more traditional stuff, like Take Me Out. Yeah, if I had to do rock and roll every day, I would go crazy. I love doing opera one day, then little performance art one day, and then uh, you know this one. If I had to do Broadway musicals every day, I would go out of my mind. That's just not what I do. But uh, I like doing all kinds of things. I also like not working, <laughs> <laughs> but i like I like doing different different size things every day I mean all the time. Is there an increased interest in your design work since the tony
0: nomination MC, um, any yeah people
3: from your... have it's it's like the last year I've really gotten in a groove with what I do, and people have really gotten in a groove with what I do and have really supported financially what I want to make you know these big things but yeah, I think um What's neat about these shows, Passing Strange and, um, and uh, Spring Awakening, is that there's so much of my long path in these shows, and that people responding to them is very gratifying because they're really responding to, I think, like this thing I've done as an artist. You know, there are other shows I've done that people responded to that were nicely lit, and there were neat shows, and there was a lot of me in them, but it just wasn't as much of this long path I've gone through in that show. And this, this, the uh, Spring Awakening and Passing Strangers are the very, there's just a lot of me in those shows. The very personal journey is in those. <laughs> blah, um, blah, blah. You know, especially when it, actors, a lot of times they can only do one
0: show and they're in it for a long time. And mm-hmm. designers, you know, Get to do lots and lots of yes. things. Yes, um, consequently actors a lot of times have to be picky, and they have their criteria. Like they want the script and the director, and you know the, certain things. Are, are you picky? Do you look at <laughs> I do, do certain elements <laughs> have to fall into place, or do you just grab
3: everything? No, no. I uh, there's people uh, that I like to work with, and there's people that I don't like to work with, uh, and there's places. Tell us I'm, who you don't like to work with. <laughs> I'm sure this will be
0: popular. <laughs> uh, I
3: can't. Boy, I just can't think of anyone right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I like to do all kinds of weird projects, I like quirky, I like, the, I like work that expresses a quirky voice, that's why I like doing so I've done a ton of solo shows, and I, I you know, like Eve Ensler, and Boghossian, and Avery Smith, and uh, I like the, the sort of unique, kooky voice, or outsider voice that they have, and I, I like supporting that voice, and that works a little more political than other work, which I find interesting. But I like doing all kinds of things. Um, Some great innovative show down in the
0: village where they've got $5 to build the set and do the lights.
3: Oh, totally. I mean, I really don't. I'm not very good about choosing things that will further my career. I really like my goal from early on because I knew freelancing would be up and down. And that if you tried to like, attach your identity to that or your happiness to that, you would drive yourself insane. My goal was very simple from the beginning. And I don't know how I landed in this. But it was like I only wanted to work on projects that were interesting with people that were interesting. And that was it, you know. If that paid a dollar and was nowhere, that's fine. That was the goal. So, and that, that's led me to all kinds of places. But it's never about. I, I, I actually did a like. This is. I did one of those. This job pays a lot, and I and I just. I was so miserable, and I just. I don't. I try not to do that. So, what's next on your plate? Oh, I'm doing some gardening. Some very important gardening this summer, <laughs> and uh, I'm doing some shows. Uh, i have done two shows at the Westport Playhouse. I forget if it's Country or County, I'm sorry. Uh, Billy Porter's put together this really interesting Sondheim review with all-black cast and with these new arrangements of these songs. And and you listen to these arrangements and these voices, and it's like, oh, my God, why has no one ever done this before? It's really, really a beautiful project. And uh, I think I'm doing this uh, British import called The 39 Steps, which is coming to Broadway next year. Doing that, I just, I don't know what's going to be, up. things, options, <laughs> things, putting <it> all together.
0: <laughs> what would be your biggest advice that you would give to any aspiring technicians who are listening and wanting to be in your Tony-nominated place in a few years?
3: Oh, the, anyone who's in theater is that, uh, I just think we all forget that we're freelancers, you know, and freelance is always going to be up and down. I don't care who you are, you know, there'll be like long cycles of up and down. But there's always up and there's always down. And you have to find a way to live outside of that, to put your identity outside of that. Uh, otherwise, you will just drive yourself crazy. And it's great to have hobbies <laughs> outside of that and interests outside of that. But if you attach who you are or your self of worth or all those things to that, that cycle, then you'll just, you're, you're, it's just doomed. <laughs> <laughs> right? I have a Hedwig story. Okay. I don't know if it's so interesting. You know, when we were off... Off-Broadway, the show used to end with John singing You Light Up My Life in German, and it was really cool because he sang it so beautifully, and it was in German and in English, and then a year later, we went to the Jane Street Theater We could not get the rights to that song, and we were panicked, like, well, how do we, that's the end of our show, what are we going to do, we have no end of the show, we've got to get the rights. Larry Kramer stepped in and was going to get us that song for like a, a very fair price that we could afford, but in the meantime, Stephen Trask had written this song, and so one day he called us all to Midtown, and we sat in this little tiny room, and he pulled out his acoustic guitar, and he played midnight radio for us, and we were like, okay, well, well, I guess we should just sort of try that. So, we ended up not getting the rights for You Live My Life, and we, uh, we stuck with Midnight Radio instead. Anyway, it's like, exciting things like that that are kind of cool to be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a fun ride. Well, thanks for st- uh, so much for stopping by Broadway Bullet. My pleasure. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The Callboard. Welcome to The Call Board. I've got a couple short announcements and then a very special guest. Remember, you can find out more about everything we talk about in The Call Board and on the entire program in our show notes. Just go to BroadwayBullet.com and click on Volume 118. All right, Pirates of Penzance, now known as Pirates, with an exclamation mark, begins its run at Paper Mill Playhouse June 7th and runs until July 8th. Nice to know they got their financial difficulties sorted out. Also, Broadway loves the 80s. A benefit concert for United Nations Association Hero Campaign will be held on June 13th at Joe's Pub. It features some of your favorite Broadway stars singing their favorite hits of that colorful decade. We have a special guest with us on the call board today, and Jess McLeod, who is the Associate Director of Programming at Nymph, is here to talk about the Spring Concert Series' last event, Undercover Showtoons, and we might get a little sneak into what's up for the fall. How are you doing?
4: I'm good. I'm Good, how are you? Good. So uh, what's Undercover Show Tunes about? Uh, well, it's Undercover Show Tunes because we're looking at some songs out of the last 50 or 60 years out of the pop rock canon that just have a little more lyrically driven or character driven or story driven. You know, everybody has their favorite stuff from the Beatles and David Bowie and then from newer folks like Rufus Wainwright and Stephen Merritt, who actually have been dabbling in writing musical theater and opera. Um, and we just saw this concert as an opportunity to take advantage of that and you know, throw some really amazing. Broadway people up there, and put Mano Felsiano up there, being Major Tom from Space Oddity, and just kind of have fun with that, exposing the more theatrical side, um, you know, of some of these songs.
0: Now, this is at the Zipper. Yep, it's going to be the
4: Zipper Factory. It's uh, Monday, June 18th, 7 o'clock. There's a lot of people involved in this too, right? Yeah, uh, like I mentioned, Mono, Michael Winther, um, Nancy Opal as of this morning, I think, Alison Frazier, uh, Christian Campbell, and Gloria Rubin, Miriam Shore, Mary Faber, <laughs> who's currently appearing in Avenue Q, and who else? We, we, we haven't quite solidified all of the casting yet. We've still got a couple of balls that are in the air that we're actually really excited about, but it's a really terrific kind of broad range of you know Broadway people, some film and TV people, but uh, you know what I've been finding is all people who really like musical theater and really are kind of turned on by the idea of taking, taking some pop rock songs and just throwing them up there in a concert style telling the stories a little bit. You know, we're going to do, like, She's Leaving Home, that Lennon McCartney song, and, and Our House the, by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Um, and, you know, break down the lyrics and kind of tell the story a little bit more, um, I guess you could say, uh, specifically.
0: And also, kind of as a tease, uh, many of our listeners really love the Nymph coverage, and we're definitely going to be doing even more this oh, year coming great. up. great! We love to hear that. And uh, so you were, you were in charge of the selection of the whole process for Next Link.
4: Well, I wouldn't say I was in charge. Um, I guess you could say I managed the process. Uh, of the 30-plus musicals that come to the New York Musical Theater Festival every year, 18 of them come to us through totally open submissions. Um, the evaluation process is completely blind, and so we whittle a list of about, you know, 300 or so submissions it was this year down to 18 shows. And we are very excited about this year's 18 shows. I'm curious.
0: How hard is it to analyze from the page the page the stage? To
4: analyze from the page to the, in the stage? P- meaning... In the
0: past, how many surprise, How many shows have surprised you as being a lot better than you thought they were going to be, and how many were like, oh, we made a mistake? Oh, you
4: mean in production? Yeah. Well, we, we've, we've never made a mistake. I should go on record to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Nymph, uh, Nymph doesn't make mistakes. You know, I will say that, that there are so many factors that come into play when you go from the page to the stage, you know, and that's actually why this year, I mean, different factors like who's producing it and who's directing it, what kind of uh, interpretation they want to, you know take with the production, what kind of angle they want to take, who ends up being in it. And, um, you know, it's certainly a, a huge endeavor to take your show, especially if you started as a writer and not a producer, to take that and make it into a three-dimensional, fully-realized production that has rehearsal behind it and, you know, all sorts of creative teams and other people involved, and so this year, we're actually really trying to make uh, make an effort to make sure that the writers are really happy with the drafts of the shows that get seen at Nymph, which is why this year, we've uh, we've actually assembled a team of Nymph official dramaturgs um, and assigned them to one or two Nextlink shows each. Um, you know, a really terrific group of uh, directors and professional dramaturgs, people who just have a lot of professional experience experience making musicals come to life and really just, you know, to be there as a resource for the writers, um, you know, to make sure that they're really, they're really happy with the product by the end of it
0: any one or two particular shows that you think are going to stand out
4: oh gosh well you know if I name one Michael everybody else is going to get mad at me we've got all all 18 are great um, you know we've got stuff ranging from uh, you know a, a show called the boy, in the, the boy in the Bathroom that's three people and it's about a boy who has OCD and actually lives in his bathroom it's really really tiny we've also got something called uh, Sherlock Holmes The Early Years That really is going to be a lot of fun. It's got a ton of people and a British chorus and a whole thing. And, um, you know, then there's Such Good Friends, which is a show about the McCarthy era and, uh, and television that's also going to be a really big show. So we've got a whole real wide range of things.
0: We're looking very, forward. Very but yeah. in the meantime, satisfy urge, uh, go to Undercover Show Tunes.
4: Yes, please come to Undercover to Show Tunes. They're going to be a... The date again? It's June 18th, which is a Monday at the Zipper Factory at 7 p.m. Tickets. Nymph.org for tickets. I think if you, you know, pay something extra, I think there's a little reception afterwards with the cast that should be an extra amount of fun. The plug for it is there are all sorts of people that we know about like both David Bowie and the Beatles and, you know, Janice Ian and all sorts of folks who have always been writing really terrific stories. And then there are all these new people like the. Decemberists, and Rufus Wainwright and Stephen Merritt, that, you know, I'm hoping to sort of convince that they should be writing musicals. So, um, you know, come see some songs that you definitely know, and then come see the ones that you really ought to know, I guess is what we have to say with the concert. All right.
0: Well, thanks, Jess, for coming down and thanks, also Michael. giving us a little sneak into the fall. My pleasure. Up Close. Anna Luizos has had quite a year designing sets on Broadway and off-Broadway, designing In the Heights, Curtains, and she is the sole Tony nominee designing the set for High Fidelity, which you probably heard us mention on the show several times. The set stole the show in what was actually a good show. So how are you doing today, Anna?
5: Great, great. It's nice to be here.
0: Is this your first Tony nomination?
5: Yes, it is. How
0: does that feel?
5: When I think of where I came from and where I've ended up, it's pretty surprising. I've been an assistant for many years, more than... More than I care to admit, at least 15. And uh, so I've gotten to know the crew and I just know how to treat people with respect. And I also think it helps to know what you're talking about. And I do. I feel like over the years, I've just, all the experience I've had as an assistant, you know, making scenery, figuring out how scenery moves, has been uh, a real learning experience for me. And I've learned to be practical, but also um, when I can push. To get my vision across,
0: you certainly figured out how scenery moves because uh, your set design for high fidelity was practically a ballet. <laughs> <laughs> Not only a technical, impressive feat, but it was a very artistically successful in helping further the story, I thought. Oh, thank you. What is it like getting all those pieces literally moving constantly around the stage? What, yeah. kind, of, what kind of track work is going on underneath the?
5: The automation was pretty superb, I must say the The shops did an incredible job, and when Walter, Bobby, and I first sat down and talked about the show, he gave me a list of what his requirements were for the show, and one was he w- didn't want any blackouts of the show. He wanted the scenery to move a vista, which means in front of the audience without you know without any curtains coming down or anything. And um, he wanted the scenery to dance, and he wanted the scenery to be funny. <laughs> and he also said uh, he wanted the set to look like it was put together by these guys, these slacker guys, a bunch of smart slacker guys. He wanted it to look like it, that they, they built it. Uh, it had to have character. It had to look authentic to these characters. I like efficiency. It's something that I love to do. Even with Avenue Q, everything was very compact, and things popped open, and things came out. And I don't know. It's, it's like something I like to do. I like to try to figure out how to make things be very efficient. I figured out how to have the minimal amount of pieces on stage that could just shift and transform, rotate, track on and off um, in as many possible combinations that I could come up with.
0: Is it a little like those, you know, those square little puzzles where it's like a traffic the jam, cube? the cars? No, the, the, the square little thing where you got the cars and you try to move them.
5: <laughs> yeah, over. in a way. It's, it's like that. And, and some of them flip around, too. Yeah. <laughs> because there was this, there was a scene where uh, we were in the bedroom. We were in Rob's bedroom for a moment. No, we were in Ian's bedroom, which was the guy who had the Shiva on his wall and the, and the Buddhas and all the, the Indian gods. And then... We had to instantly transform from that scene where Rob says, "I hate this guy," and suddenly he throws himself on the bed, and it transforms to Rob's bed. So that was that, that was pretty cool.
0: That was impressive.
5: <laughs> I love that. I love that scene. <laughs> and then as the only way I could come up with it was was these uh, vertical blind ideas that that trans you know that flipped around, and then of course we had the bed that was a bed on top of a bed, uh, because Rob needed to just kind of collapse on top of Ian and uh, Laura who were. Descending into hell in his fantasy. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. It took a lot of meetings. We met many, many, many times. I had model pieces. Uh, my poor assistants kept building new versions of model pieces, and we kept bringing schlepping everything to the producing office and sitting in the conference room with Walter and moving little pieces around and talking through every scene and how we could get from one scene to the next. What would be the most interesting way to do it? We talked through everything, and then when we went to Boston, we try you know we did our out of town tryout. There were a number of times when Walter said, you know, I'm not quite sure how we're going to get to the scene. I might want to change it, but I know I have enough of the toys to play with that we can try something different. And he was very uh, creative about it. You know, we changed a few things from what we came up with in the the work process in the studio. And uh, it all worked still. You know, it was great. It was wonderful to discover those things once we had all the toys, the real toys, you know, on stage. The programming was... It's all computer programmed. All that, all those moves had to be set up in tech. We had two shops building those the the set. We had Hudson Scenic up in Yonkers. They did all of the uh, scenery that moved on top, and then Show Motion from Norwalk, Connecticut built all the tracking pieces. You wouldn't have believed the basement. <laughs> the basement was uh, it was like a, a space shuttle launch pad down there. <laughs> It was fun to watch people come down from the bed when you were down in the basement, when they were descending, you know. It was really cool to look at. Kind of scary, too.
0: So in in developing your career, um, how did you get started? Where did you go to school, and how did you take being like a neophyte into becoming a Tony-nominated set designer? (laughs) I'm sure there's some tech people out there wanting to know how.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in California, and I uh, I wanted to be an actress way back when. I went I went to college thinking I was going to be an actress, a performer. I went to Mills College in Oakland, California for two years and then um, decided I needed to come to New York. So I transferred to NYU in their undergrad acting program at Tisch. And then um, after I graduated, I thought to myself, mm, I don't think I want to be an <laughs> actress. I think I want to do something else. But throughout the time I was... Um, you know, in college. I always loved, you know, helping hang the lights and all the backstage stuff I was really interested in doing. And I always could draw, you know. I was always interested in more than just being on stage anyway. And also just the sense of control of, you know, your your future and your destiny just seemed better suited backstage than on stage because, you know, there's so many actors out there. It's not, not my cup of tea ultimately. I started thinking about designing, and, uh, and so I started assisting because um, I had the aptitude I could I could draw and draft and build models. So I did that for five years, and then I decided to go back to school to get my master's at NYU. And uh, so I, it was a gradual uh, learning process for me. You know, even as a kid, I loved building things, and my father was very, very helpful and, and very encouraging for me. So I think, you know, I always had an interest in that. When I got got out of NYU, I worked on television shows and uh, did a whole lot of things, really. I mean, it wasn't just one clear path. It was, you know, I supported myself working in the restaurant business. That's how I I made money. And then uh, once I got out of college, I was able to get into the union and then get better paying assisting jobs, a lot of assisting jobs. You know, and the only design work I got was little off-Broadway shows, you know, Mm like— music theater festival type stuff, you know, digging in dumpsters for props and...
0: Uh, Having $5 to Exactly, <laughs> yeah, no,
5: $100, you know, and or if you got, you know, $500, you ended up spending it on props and your friends to help you and paying your friends to help paint the scenery, all that kind of stuff. It was just a long, slow process. And somehow it's just, it's crazy how you end up just lucking out with one show and suddenly it, it helps transform your career
0: what was the one show for you
5: uh well i think the first show i did that got me some recognition was tick tick boom which was at the jade street theater and it was i had you know i was finally working with producers that had that had some cachet you know and legitimacy got a lot of press and uh and i i formed an association with a wonderful director scott schwartz and then we ended up doing several shows together we did uh We've done like seven, eight shows now together over the years. I did another show with him at, at the Manhattan Ensemble Theater called The Castle, which got a lot of really good uh, publicity and good reviews. And then a year later, we did another show at MET called Goldest Balcony. That same year, I ended up doing Avenue Q at the Vineyard Theater. And I'd say that you know Avenue Q certainly was the one show that really changed my, my trajectory. And uh, that same year, I ended up working on as art director on Sex in the City, I got that same job around the same time. So I was doing Gold's Balcony, <laughs> Avenue Q, and Sex in the City all around the same time. And then when they decided to move Avenue Q um, uptown, and then two months later, Gold's Balcony moved uptown as well. I had two Broadway shows, in, and I had to leave Sex in the City because I just you know, suddenly had two Broadway shows. And it was like, oh, my God, it's a dream come true for me. That's what changed things, and that was only four or five years ago.
0: I think, out of all the shows that you designed that I've seen, I think the the biggest thing that I have to say is I don't see a style, and I you you suit the storytelling very well. I try the individual I, yeah. show. Like I mean, curtains was a very different beast than uh, oh, yeah. high fidelity.
5: Yeah, I, yeah, I, I I think that's true, and uh, I remember I worked for Tony Walton for a, a, a number of years and uh, he was a wonderful mentor and uh, example of just being a good person and being a talented person at the same time. You know, he said, don't worry about a style. He always said that. He said, you know, your your style will evolve and you won't even realize it. You won't even be aware of it. For me, it's the most important thing is to talk to the director and understand how to tell the story of the play and whatever shape or form that takes, uh, I'm willing to go in whatever direction that is. It's fun. You know, you get to try all kinds of different things. and It's like being an actor, really. When you think about it, actors, you know, they embody the character that they're they're reading for. So, you know, I think it gives them versatility and that's the fun part really.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I understand uh, just as a, another quick plug, a friend of ours, David Kirshenbaum, has been on the show a couple of times. Mm. Uh, I understand you're slated to work on his show, Vanities.
5: Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I, uh, I saw a uh, a little closed reading uh, of it uh, a couple weeks ago and the, they were singing the songs from the show and I just think the music is fantastic and uh, I remember seeing that show when it was a play years ago at the Westside Arts Theater in uh, here in New York right down the street actually from here. <laughs> it ran forever it was one of those off-Broadway phenomena that just uh, wouldn't stop uh, running and uh, reviving it as a musical is, is a just a brilliant idea, I think. Um, and it just infuses it with a whole other life, especially because now Jack Hefner has added another section to the story. T- story. So for those of us who had seen it the first time around, we'll have a whole new perspective on the show.
0: And I understand you have a very interesting blind item.
5: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, sometime in the future. I'm very excited to be looking and looking forward to a musical version of Tales of the City, but that's all I'm going to say.
0: <laughs> the Armistead Maupin yes. books for those who.
5: Yes, exactly.
0: Well, I thank you so much for stopping down here and coming down on a rainy another rainy day here in New York.
5: Yeah, it feels uh, good. It feels good to be here, and uh, it's very exciting to be here. And I'm th- I really appreciate your uh, asking me.
0: Thanks, and I wish you the best of luck on June 10th. Thanks. I'm personally rooting for you. Oh, thank you. Thanks.
2: Listening room.
0: Composer Scott Frankel and lyricist Michael Corey Are nominated for Tony Award for Best Score from Grey Gardens And we've got a song from the new release Of the PS Classics Grey Gardens Original Broadway Cast Recording Here's Will You, performed by Christine Ebersole
2: Good afternoon everyone And welcome, welcome to Grey Gardens like to commence our little tribute to young love with one of our all-time favorites, Gould, will you? When lilacs return Going to be tickled pink to see you all here. I'm afraid she's slipped away for the moment. The guest of honor, she's missing in action. <laughs> Nerves, I'm sure. But she won't be gone for long, I just know it. Why, just look at the garden, the sound of the ocean. And all of you here, all of you come to celebrate Edie. My little Edie. Why, I have no doubt any minute she'll come breezing down the stairs or surprises maybe, through the patio doors. Because I ask you, who could ever bear to leave?
0: And please let everybody know that the original Broadway cast recording of Grey Gardens is also now available at iTunes. Finally, although you're going to have to search for it under Orininal Broadway Cast Recording. No, that's not me. That's iTunes. (laughs) Orininal. Gotta love it. Again, that's Will You, performed by Christine Ebersole, herself up for Best Leading Actress in a Musical.
6: On the Positive Side Hey, this is Marty Cooper, once again on the positive side. And first of all, I'd like to give a shout out to my girl, Orfe. Uh, I love doing Legally Blonde. I like everything you do, actually. And I want to remind people, because you might have some thoughts on what I'm going to say. You can reach me at my email address, broadwaymarty@aol.com. at aol.com. Along 14 years ago, which, uh, 1993, uh, the last time I didn't go to the Tonys. I've been going every year since. I enjoy them greatly. I I would have a hard time sitting home and watching them on TV. Just the whole aura of the occasion is great. I remember 1993, uh, a show which would make it into a lot of people's repertoire and has become a favorite with people all over the world, Blood Brothers. Was blasted by the critics, and they were trying to run it out of town. And it was nominated for six Tonys. And it got a spot on the Tony Award show. And uh, the late Stephanie Lawrence did a song called Tell Me It's Not True. It stirred a lot of people, and it brought a lot of people to the theater. Uh, Of course, uh, following The English cast at that time with the Cassidy Brothers, Sean and David, and Petula Clark, didn't hurt either. It became a favorite for about two years on Broadway. Now, I was a bit disturbed this week when I saw an ad for the Tonys, and they were discussing what will go on on Sunday night. Fantasia is going to sing a song from uh, Color Purple. Color Purple was a show from last year. In the same vein... Why didn't Harvey Fierstein get a chance to go on his Tevye a couple of years ago? Why didn't Jonathan Price get to do his uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels bit? Why is this happening? It uh, might be happening because uh, Oprah has money and uh, she's trying to push her show a little bit. But the point is, if, uh, if Sunday night is going to be a, a three-hour infomercial for Broadway, they should give the shows, all the shows that are on Broadway... A shot. Shows that haven't closed, shows that are still there. A couple of them could use a shot, like my favorite, uh, Pirate Queen, or Love Music, or Legally Blonde. Why aren't they giving them a moment on the show? Why are we reiterating last year's? Guys, I gotta tell you, the producer of the Tonys, you should look more into selling the wares you have on Broadway now and not reiterate what was. I mean, that show obviously is running successfully. I understand Fantasia is great, but let's not go back. Let's sell some of this year's stuff. Well, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'll talk about a few moments from the Tonys that I've enjoyed. Like, for instance, the first year I went, George Abbott at 101 won for directing Damn Yankees. That was very memorable. I've had many good times at those shows. Uh, 1995, the next year, there were only two new musicals nominated for a Tony. One was Sunset, and the other was Smokey Joe's Cafe. And there were a couple of revivals, I think. The hosts of that show were Nathan Lane, Glenn Close, and Gregory Hines. It was an extremely entertaining show. I, I think probably because they didn't have as much material as they normally might. They did little skits with each other, and... I remember that show opening with about 10 songs about Broadway, not only about the Broadway in Manhattan, but Broadway's all over the country. And they had different famous people on film singing songs about Broadway, and they showed you scenes of the Broadway's in the various towns. And then a great shot was outside the what was then the Virginia Theatre is now the August Wilson, the guys from Smokey Joe's Cafe, they had the band with them, and they marched down Broadway, and they marched into the Minskoff Theater. It was a very exciting way to start a Tony Awards. Uh My view on this year's, I'm pretty sure, if they do it right, that David Hyde Pierce will open the award show with a song called Show People from Curtains, if they do it right. And if you haven't put it together yet, do it that way. In any case, this is Marty Cooper. I'll see you next week on The Positive Side.
0: On The Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. Online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway, you can always say, I found it at The Colony. Up. Close. Love Music is the new musical directed by Harold Prince, settling around the story of uh, the marriage of Lottie Lenya and Kurt Vile. But everyone who's anyone in theater knows that a major character in that whole uh, story is Bertolt Brecht and an actor David Pittu has gotten a Tony nomination for his very interesting portrayal of Berthold Brecht. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. It's so nice to have you it's here. It's great to be here. First thing I got to say is this performance of Brecht is really I don't know if I've seen a role where, really, in a musical, the villain and the comic relief were like all <laughs> balled up in one such a great
7: quirky performance. Oh, thank you, thank you. So, what what, what was behind this whole interpretation of Bertolt Brecht? Um, well, a, a lot of people had a hand in it, I guess. Hal Prince and um, Alfred Eury and Pat Birch, and even I would include Judith Dolan, the costume designer. Um, it was like trying to find the Perfect balance of uh, a really strange non-song and dance man, and trying to sort of turn him into one. Bertolt Brecht definitely was not <laughs> the song and dance man. But I think the I think it's more of a sort of fantasy depiction of the myth of Brecht. You know, a lot of the myths about him and his women and and you know his his ways of dealing with people, sort of all thrown in together and heightened, certainly because <laughs> everybody says you know, he was a, an absolute prick to deal with in real life but he was a genius and most people say the more that you sort of read about Brecht the less you end up liking him which could be true but if you have to play him obviously you have to love him so and you play the most perfectly lovable hateable character <laughs>
0: and you have a, you have a great tango number at your entrance basically that really
7: kind of steals the show oh well thank you I think that that's actually one of the best sort of things that the show tries to do and actually really kind of pulls off because it's taking obviously a song from another uh, show, a Brecht Vile show, obviously Three Penny Opera and using it to our own you know, storytelling ends and yeah, I think we've reworked that one in a really good way in terms of showing, especially since it's the introduction the audience gets to Brecht, um, that he was he certainly had this sort of factory of women around him and um, and I think the song really kind of even though the song lyrics are about a pimp and a and a prostitute it, in a way symbolically that is how many people see Brecht as having used the women around him because a lot of them contributed to his writing and sort of went uncredited and I guess you could consider that to be pimping of a certain kind. <laughs> <laughs> and the choreography puts you in continuous very close proximity with three very lovely women. Yeah, it's a great little is that, sort is that of, difficult to pull? <laughs> uh, it was difficult rehearsing, certainly, because it was really like putting a little puzzle together. And we, Pat Birch never wanted us to um, really be uh, disengaged once we sort of come together. And, and I think it's, yeah, we turned it into this little machine. It's really cool, and it's really fun to do. You've had
0: kind of a busy year. This is already your
7: second Broadway production this year as well. Yeah, or you could say my fourth. Fourth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I've had a, an incredible year. I've had so much fun, and I've worked with so many incredible people, and on such great material. It's really kind of amazing. So, yeah, Harold Prince and uh, another legend in the playwriting field with Coast of Utopia, yeah, Tom Yeah, Tom Stoppard himself, who's an amazing guy and great to be around. And uh, certainly this sort of thread of communist uh, thinking through both the shows, which seems to hold them together.
0: What was the process like? How grueling was the the full days of
7: Costa Utopia? The marathons? Yes. Um, They were great. I have to say the very first one was tremendous because we had no idea what to expect and we didn't take a curtain call after each play obviously and when we took the bow after the third play it really was like nothing I'd ever experienced or I don't think anybody else had ever experienced before or ever will because you know after nine hours of theater it was just immediate standing ovation before we were hardly even you know, the lights had barely come up and the audience just rushed to their feet. And then, you know, Jack O'Brien had staged this bow specifically for marathon days where we, you know, knelt down and we put our hand over our heart and then we applauded the audience. So it was really just, you know, exactly what you want it to always feel like. It was really thrilling. How did you get involved? Where did you study? What was your kind of career trajectory heading into acting? Uh, I went to NYU, and I graduated in 89. I, I, The last year I was at NYU, I was involved a lot with Atlantic Theatre Company, who had just started for a few years doing a program through NYU, and I, I uh, studied with them the last year, and then when I graduated, I um, continued working with them and apprenticing and stuff like that with the theatre company. We used to go to Vermont a lot in the summer times. And then about... Um, 92, 93, I think I became a member of the company. So I've been connected with them a lot, too, and um, I love working there. I teach there. i directed shows there. i acted in shows there. And the Atlantic Theatre Company definitely had a hot streak this past year. Yeah, (laughs) also connected to Brecht, (laughs) because, I mean, the Vatican who wrote Spring Awakening was a huge uh, hero of Brecht, and actually that was one of the sort of surprises I learned about Brecht, reading about him, that, that he really modeled himself in, in large part uh, after Vedekind. And even his own early singing style was modeled after Vedekind, who used to perform. And, you know, uh, Brecht's whole uh, performance style was kind of stolen from him a little bit. But in homage, you know, <laughs> that kind of enfant terrible sort of uh, persona. One thing I find amazing for
0: this, in a lot of ways, this is pretty much a jukebox musical. They've taken a lot of Kurt Weil's songs just from various places and mm-hmm. compiled it. But what I found kind of intriguing is it really doesn't feel like a jukebox. The lyrics do pretty much fit the situations pretty well of what the characters are going through. And it,
7: yeah, it f- and it f- also you have to remember, too, thank God, that you know, most jukebox musicals are songs written for jukeboxes. And yeah. <laughs> th- these songs are written for the theater, so it's... Yeah, and a lot of them did become, you know, popular standards, obviously. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's a great uh, catalog of... I mean, certainly there are lots of people who say, why didn't you use Pirate Jenny and other songs? But, you know, no. there's... He, I think the primarily the, the primary interest was telling the love story and not just, you know, showing off the songs. So what's it like getting the reviews that say that you often
0: manage to steal the scenes from such a established legends as Michael Severus
7: and uh, Donna Murphy. I don't I didn't know I had gotten those reviews. But. I know I've seen a couple that use use those wordings. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's it is such a joy to work with the two of them. I can't tell you. I, I I love acting with them. I think that when the three of us are doing it on stage together, we really do feel kind of like the three of those people. I think it, the chemistry between us seems like it, you know, if we kind of try to approximate what it would have been like between the three of those legends it, it is kind of cast well i must say hal did a good job in that regard i think everybody walks into a hal prince project knowing that really good acting is expected of you and i think donna and michael are definitely as i like to think of myself you know transforming actors you know they don't just have a sort of persona that they play all the time and they really do kind of lose themselves in their parts and uh that's the kind of stuff I like to do. Somehow, I don't know, channeling whatever it is. I I, I like to think Brecht would have been like, or something, if I can uh, be so presumptuous. <laughs> but I keep thinking he's, he's going to do something horrible, like his ghost is going to drop something on me, or something, because he's <laughs> it's just, you know, from what when, when you read the stories about him, you think he would definitely not like somebody playing him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd be very flattered by it. <laughs> I hope so.
0: <laughs> well, now, the, another kind of interesting twist on this whole show is that Hal Prince worked with the original, with yeah. Lottie Lenya in the original Cabaret. Mm-hmm. And how, how many
7: layers does that add to the production when the director way back in his, you know, early I, days? I don't like, know. What? I think you'd probably have to t- ask Donna yeah. that because I think that he didn't really, I didn't hear him talk too much about her so much. But I must say that you can really see how he is a, he's internalized Brecht, whether he realizes it or not. He's, he, there's a lot of similarities between Hal and Brecht. I mean, it, you know, in the positive sense, in terms of, like, his sense of fighting and his sense of, you know, always sort of reacting against something and wanting his shows to have some kind of, you know, social commentary. Um, I think that's there even in this. You know, there's still, like, this sort of jab at America... Even with Brecht, you know, and his lawsuits and all of these things that, that sort of become, you know, in hand in hand with American success is, you know, the loss of one's goodness or something.
0: Brecht, who, who most dislikes America, takes on its
7: most uh, <laughs> American lawsuit qualities. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a theme that runs through so many of Hal's shows, you know, Pacific Overtures, certainly, obviously, the you know, even Follies, you know, just that sour sort of. Sweeney Todd, certainly. Well, you know, it's just that that feeling of uh, corruption. You know what happens to to people in the world, and especially in America. I think there's always and, and and Hal Prince's life, I think, is an interesting combination of that too. You know, he's he's somebody who's really hugely successful in American show business, but yet he's always kind of twisting it a little bit in in the shows. I think you know he's never satisfied with being comfortable you know and he was always saying that to me when we were he he has me in the audience uh, obviously a few times and I was really resistant to it because I have to walk through people's aisles and step on their feet and everything and and I said you know what people aren't going to like this and he said that's exactly why I want to do it I want to make them uncomfortable and when he said that I thought oh I see okay that's how I have to think of this and just embrace that. Are you anxious for the Tony Awards? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, you know, anxious. I don't know. I'm excited. I don't. I, I'm keeping my expectations extremely low, but uh, I've never been, so I'm happy to go at the first time as a nominee, especially for you know a Hal Prince show, which is sort of like a childhood dream come true. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very excited, very excited to go to that. Had to buy a tux, which I've never done before, so it's about time. Off the rack, or did you get a designer? It was off the rack, <laughs> 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 but it was. Certainly not off-the-rack price. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely wish you the best of luck. Well, thank and, you.
0: And uh, I do urge people to rush to check out Love Music. Cause yeah, I
7: hope they will. I think it's a really... A lot of people, which always surprises me, say they've never heard of these people and they didn't know their story, and I think that's really important. I think it's a really great way to learn about this period of history and theater history and, um, and the contribution that these people I mean, not yes, Brecht, but the show it really isn't about Brecht. I mean, it's more about Lenya and Weil. It's great to hear people talk about, uh, you know, that they want to go out and read books about these people now, and, and you know, buy the CDs and listen to these shows. Because uh, I always assume everybody knows the the Kurt Vile canon, but a lot of people a lot of people really don't. I mean, they know Three Penny, but uh, there's a, his music is incredible. So, well, David, I thank you so much for stopping by the thank studio you and sharing with me. everybody. And Best of luck, and
0: best of luck with everything upcoming in your uh, glowing career. (laughs) Thank you. Take care.
2: Listening Room.
0: John Kattner, Fred Ebb, and Rupert Holmes are up for best original score for Curtains. And we have a track from the newly released CD. This is It's a Business, performed by... Debra Monk herself nominated for Best Leading Actress in a Musical.
8: I'm sorry, Elaine, but as a Broadway producer, there's something more important to me than you getting a star turn. What? Me turning a prophet. I've never been known as one of those stupid clucks, Elaine. Bambi. Who pisses away a lot of her hard-earned bucks, Elaine. Bambi! But facing the fact your coloratura sucks, Bambi, though it breaks your mother's heart, forget about the part. It's time for you to know why I really backed this show. You ask me for my motives, well, you needn't be so smart. It's a business. It isn't making history. It isn't making art. It's a business. Shaw and Ibsen, take them away and don't me with Moliere, those Russians never pay, so go on, criticize me, please, proceed with your attack, it's a business, I put one million in, and I expect two million back, it's a business, Oh, what crime have I committed? If I'm putting up a fight, it's a business. And I want those paying suckers out there giving me the business every night. Am I getting through to you, Elaine? I'm sorry, Mother, but to me, the theater is a temple. What? So it should only be filled on Shabbos? Give me a hand, fellas. Very funny, you know what I mean? Back me up. The not-for-profit theaters don't need to turn a buck. That's not business. That's not business. So give them Lissa Strata, and I wish them lots of luck. I do business.
9: She does business.
8: Gorky, schmorky, money misspent. You won't survive, Yom kipper. You'll never get through Lent. <laughs> A producer whose pretension knew no bounds In the business In the business He mounted Samuel Beckett I don't mean it like it sounds It was business It was business So now he's down the crapper While I'm working in my prime It's a business It's a
9: business
8: Shows I do do business Because I really know my business And I'm giving them the business, honey All the time But what about the great poets of the stage? Honey, I put on the ice, man cometh And nobody cameth To stagehands, to the dressers To musicians in the pit It's a business It's a business The owner of these premises Cleans up He's in business He's in business Union members Don't work for free Hey Harry on the spotlight Blink twice if you agree See I'm not devoid of culture But my feet are on the floor It's a business It's a business I do the Kama Sutra With a Richard Rodgers score Favorite color, and I don't mean on the grass, it's a business.
9: business.
8: And the shows I do do business, yes, I'm good at doing business. And if you don't like my business, sweetie, blow it out.
0: The original Broadway cast recording for Curtains is out now on Manhattan Records. You can find it everywhere, including Amazon.com and iTunes. That was It's a Business, performed by Deborah Monk top of the trades. Lincoln Center Theater has announced its two productions for the fall 2007 season. Vivian Beaumont will host William Shakespeare's late period play, Cymbeline, and will begin previews on November 1st, with an official opening on December 2nd. The production will be directed by Mark Lamos, who has previously directed Lincoln Center's productions of Seascape, The Rivals, and Big Bill. And the Mitzi Newhouse will house the New York premiere of The Glorious Ones, a musical about the troupe of comedia dell'arte actors written by Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, and based on the novel by Francine Pose. Graciela Danielle will direct and choreograph the production, which begins previews on October 11th and opens officially on November 5th. The show had its world premiere this spring at the Pittsburgh Public Theater. A whole bunch of new presenters have been added to the list for the Tony Awards this Sunday. That will all be old news in three days, so check out the show notes and find the link at broadwaybullet.com, Volume 118, if you'd like more information. The Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles has announced plans for its 2007-2008 season. It will include Suzanne Lori Park's 365 Days, 365 Plays, Wendy Wasserstein's third, starring award-winning actress Christine Latti, the American premiere of Joanna Murray Smith's The Female of the Species, starring Oscar nominee Annette Benning; and the world premiere of Donald Margulies' The Elephant in the Room. Daniel Beatty's Emergency C and the world premiere of Jane Anderson's Quality of Life starring Emmy Award winner Laurie Metcalf Oh, I like her, yeah (laughs) Top of the Trades is sponsored by BroadwayWorld.com, your first destination for all theater news and socializing Curtain Call Broadway's epic Irish-themed musical, The Pirate Queen, will close on Sunday, June 17th at the Hilton Theatre. The mega-musical, which is rumored to have cost over $15 million, will have played 32 previews and 85 performances at the time of closing. Producers Moya Doherty and John McColgan hinted that plans for a European English-language production are underway. A cast recording of The Pirate Queen will be released on Masterworks Broadway on July 3rd. Well, I hope everybody enjoys their Tonys and has some Tony parties going on. And i got to let you know that next week is going to be our season finale until July 19th, and we've got a great, great episode lined up. I'm going to tell you what's going to be on it. We have got the audio play premiere of Broadway Abridged. It's a popular blog, broadwayabridged.com, and it's going to be acted out for you. Next week. We've also got the current Elphaba in Wicked, Julia Murney, for an in-depth interview. Oh, yeah, you're going to like that. We've got a couple performances from the new musical Sessions. Got an interview, some great songs in that. And uh, we're talking to producer Adam Epstein, who's going to give us the scoop on the upcoming Crybaby. So, uh... That's going to be something to chew on for a little while. In the meantime, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and until next week, thanks for hopping aboard the Broadway Bullet.
7: Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. Broadway, Broadway. It is live,
8: after all. It is Live. Broadway, Broadway. I mean, we do it all. You know, we don't we don't back away from anything.
0: So.